day decided to make life interesting for myself and speak about the Pharisees. So that's Luke 11, beginning at verse 37. It says this, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing it. <laughs> so, one of the more fun texts to preach on, obviously. Hey, my name is James Scholl. I'm the pastor here. It's always a privilege to be with you all this morning. And thank you for turning out on a, a long weekend as well. I'm, I'm so impressed with people that are <laughs> still here. <laughs> Uh, we've been going through a series called Who Is This Man? where we ask, who is this man Jesus? Who is it that Jesus spends time with? And what can we learn from those interactions? And last week, Bill Ryan spoke about Jesus' interactions with the masses or, or the poor. Uh, and, and Jesus is pretty amazing to the poor. And a couple of weeks ago, Simone talked about the children and, and Jesus is pretty amazing to the children as well. So today I'm talking about the Pharisees because <laughs> I like making life difficult for myself. Uh, but because I like it to be a real challenge, I'm calling this sermon, What About All the Good Stuff the Pharisees Did? What about all the good stuff the Pharisees did? And then I'm going to talk about Donna Barker. <laughs> Which, for those of you who don't know, Donna Barker is an elder here and one of the most beloved and respected people. So talking about her in a sermon about Pharisees should be a lot of fun. But what about all the good the Pharisees did? If you've been going to church for a while, you probably recoil at that idea of Pharisees doing good things. I think in our minds, Pharisees are... Jesus' arch enemies, right? They're always looking for ways to trip him up. And, of course, Jesus gives as good as he gets there. Jesus pulls no punches with the Pharisees, especially in this text. I don't think there's actually anyone that Jesus is as harsh with as he is with the Pharisees, and, and possibly in this text in particular. And so we all kind of We've been conditioned to enjoy this passage, that Pharisees are these arch enemies, and they're pious, and they're obstinate, and they're hypocritical, and Jesus takes them down, and we can all thank God that we're not Pharisees. Ha. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to forget everything you know about Pharisees for a moment, 
And if you're newer to church, that's great, because you have less to unlearn, and you get to laugh at the people that have been here a while, I suppose. Uh, I, I do think, actually, following a bit of reading this week, there are a few groups more misunderstood in the Bible than the Pharisees. Uh, today, Pharisee has become this kind of catch-all term, basically for Christian I don't agree with. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's a good way of justifying why someone else is wrong when I'm right. Well, they're a Pharisee because of this. During some, uh, obviously, very important YouTube research this week, I discovered uh, that according to conservative Christians, progressive Christians are Pharisees, and uh, cons- <laughs> according to progressive Christians, conservative Christians are Pharisees. So that's good. Everyone's a Pharisee when you don't agree with them, apparently. Emily told me there's a song from uh, VBS that's, that goes, I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. Anyone anyone the right age? Okay, yo, you, you get it, you get it. Like He's in that kind of like 20s, 30s area and getting a lot of blank stares back. Uh, my mother is a big fan of the song, I don't want to be a Pharisee or anything like that. So even into our worship songs, Pharisee, like disdain is kind of worked in there. There's an interesting to me, we don't have songs about not wanting to be centurions or not wanting to be corrupt kings, which Jesus seems pretty opposed to. We don't have songs about not wanting to be rich, which again, Jesus does have quite a lot to say about, but plenty about not being a Pharisee. But also, that's reasonable. That's not really a surprise, I suppose. And looking at our text today, it is reasonable to assume that Jesus doesn't have that many good things to say about Pharisees, and so we shouldn't either. There are many, many instances I appreciate of Jesus not painting the Pharisees in a good light or not uh, communicating them in a way that we kind of tend to expect Jesus to talk to even his enemies. So let's Who are the Pharisees? Let's forget what we know. Let's start from scratch. Who are the Pharisees? And why is it that Jesus talks to them like this? So first of all, this is kind of a weird question to ask in the first place. They're a political party, but a political party without power, and also a kind of scholarly group. It sort of blends into a lot of things. They've been around for several decades before Jesus' ministry. They continue for several decades after Jesus' ministry. And as with all political parties, as with all schools of thought, their ideas shifted over the years. And to really highlight this, remember it was the Republican Party in the U.S. 150 years ago that abolished slavery. So if you ask me what I thought of the Republican Party 150 years ago, I probably have some really good things to say. (laughs) If you ask me what I thought of the Republican Party today, my answer would be different. And that is the last time we're talking about US politics today. Groups and parties change, but in Jesus' day, there were these kind of two schools of thought within the Pharisees, one aligned with a Bet Shammai and one with Bet Hillel. Uh, And these groups disagreed a little bit on things too. Uh, Bet Shammai were considered to be a bit more conservative. Uh, Bet Hillel are a bit more progressive. Uh, one, one fun thing I learned, uh, Bet Shammai believed that lying was always wrong. 
that even white lives were unacceptable. Uh, Bet Hillel believed that all brides were beautiful on their wedding day. It's kind of some not great implications there, but you get the idea. These, these are different schools of thought. They weren't even a homogenous group within the Pharisees themselves. I think one of the biggest misconceptions that we get about the Pharisees, too, is that they make religion into something difficult to understand. But for the most part, this actually isn't the case. It seems that from the writings that we have from the Pharisees, which are pretty limited, really, their primary concern is making Judaism into something that people can understand. It's trying to make something that all the common people can benefit from. We may think that Pharisees really benefited from the religion aspect of Judaism or that they benefited or profited from, uh, say, the temple tax or the temple system in general, but actually they weren't really found anywhere near the temple. Their version of Judaism meant the temple wasn't important. They were focused on the books of the law, not the physical space that was the temple. So they spend most of their time in villages. And, and so they're very unlike the Sadducees, and the Sadducees are a group that the Pharisees get lumped in with, but they're very different, actually. The Sadducees did benefit from the temple, they did profit from the temple, they did get money from the temple tax. But listen to this again, I think this is really interesting when understanding who the Pharisees were. This is what a historian of the time says. The Sadducees are able to persuade none but the rich and they do not have a populace favorable to them. But the Pharisees have the multitude on their side. So this is contemporary authorship of the time that speaks quite highly of the Pharisees. And so the reality is that the majority of Jesus's audience, especially those who have not been welcomed in the temple, who can't afford to go to the temple, who are closer to the margins in society, would have actually had a lot of time and appreciation for the Pharisees. <laughs> and, and despite this text, which we're, we're going to get to very shortly, the New Testament as well has quite a lot of good things to say about the Pharisees, if we're willing to look. The Pharisees, they invite Jesus for dinner in Luke 7 and Luke 11, which is a real sign of respect at the time. It's someone, I see this person as an equal. I want to spend time with you. I want to learn from you. They ask him questions in a way that is respectful and honoring and genuinely curious in Luke 17. Uh, perhaps like, this is a big one for me, which I kind of skipped until this week. They warn Jesus in Luke 13, 31, that says this, at the time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Like, do we give Pharisees the credit for trying to save Jesus there? It's quite a, quite a good thing they've done. After Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, we hear in Acts 5 of Gamaliel, who's a Pharisee that sticks up for the fledgling church, the new believers in Jesus. In Acts 15, at the Council of Jerusalem, which is a whole big deal I won't get into. But, but we hear this about the believers at the Council in Jerusalem. It says some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. 
So already, just a few years after Jesus' earthly ministry, there are Pharisees who are accepting Jesus as Messiah. So, what about all the good things the Pharisees did? I think the Pharisees did a pretty good job in a lot of ways. And so this begs the question, and I realize I've taken a long while getting here, but I thought we needed to kind of reset a bit. Why is Jesus so harsh on them? Because he's really harsh on them. <laughs> I think there's two reasons that Jesus is as harsh on the Pharisees as he is. And the first, I think, is, to be honest, he knows that they know better. And that's the first reason. And, and the second, which <laughs> might be a strange one, is actually he's this harsh because they trust him and respect him. So let's, yeah, let's look at the first one. I'm, I'm not pretending otherwise. Jesus does not mince his words at all. Let's, let's look at this, this text. Let me just read that again. This, uh, verse 42, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all the kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So church leaders around the world will bring this up and say, and that's why you need to give 10% of everything. That's net, not gross income, people. 10%, come on. Um, <laughs> but, but giving 10% has always been a pretty loose practice throughout church history because, of course, it, it has to be. It's never been that way. There's so many accommodations for people who are unable to give 10%. God does not demand to extract from those who don't have anything. Also, there's an expectation of those who have more should probably give more than that. You know, these are <laughs> it, that's been complicated throughout history. But the Pharisees, and again, a particular part of the Pharisees, not all of them, got kind of obsessed with this idea of giving 10%. And so they were giving 10% of absolutely everything. And they're trying to be uh, pious. They're also trying to be thoughtful as well. How do we show our devotion? How do we follow this law, but it gets to such an extreme that they're worried about these spices that no one even has access to at the time. For example, if I gave you an entire sermon on giving 10% of your bebere away, most of you would stare at me like a dog that's been shown a card trick. And the reason for this is because bebere is a spice blend used almost exclusively in Ethiopian cooking. It's delicious, it's great, you should have it. But none of you do, so it's irrelevant. Like, it would be a pointless sermon, because <laughs> you don't have anything. So why am I talking about giving 10% of something that's irrelevant? He's saying, Pharisees, you're obsessed with these things that don't matter and aren't relevant. But you know what matters. You worry about tithing, but you neglect the justice and the love of God. Like, no wonder he's mad. Like, you're so focused on these little things that aren't relevant, but you've forgotten the reason you're doing it. And I think this also informs that comment he's made in the verses before. He says, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what's inside of you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean to you. And 
I, I don't think many of us see us as Pharisees, see ourselves as Pharisees, but that that line convicts me. <laughs> so there's a, there's a theme here, right? You keep on making up these rules to show your devotion to God. You seem to have forgotten if you're generous to the poor, if you're focused on justice. Remember how Bill spoke last week on Jesus' heartbreaking for the masses, for the poor. He says, if you're generous to those people, then, then everything else makes sense anyway. <laughs> and, and if you've heard me preach, or if you've heard someone at Wellspring preach, or if you've read the Bible, um, Jesus being frustrated with those whose religiosity obstructs them from caring for the poor should come as little surprise. Like th These verses are no surprise to anyone that's read the Gospels through. But I don't think it's because he despises the Pharisees. I actually think it's the opposite. And that's kind of my second point here. I think Jesus speaks this way because he trusts them. He speaks this way because he respects them. And he speaks this way because he knows they trust and respect him too. Like we can be tempted to read this passage and be like, this is Jesus destroying his enemies or owning the Pharisees like some sort of clickbait video. But I think what we're seeing here is Jesus's heartbreak to a brother that should know better. Jesus is expressing his heartbreak to a brother that should know better. Pharisees, you know the rules, you know the laws, you know the heart of God, and you're missing the point. You're so close, but you're so close. You're so close. The Pharisees clearly do respect Jesus for all those reasons I've mentioned. Actually, also, Pharisees are one of the few kind of uh, parts of Judaism that do believe in a bodily resurrection. This is not a common belief at the time. So Jesus and the Pharisaical thinking is actually really quite close in a lot of ways. So when Jesus is speaking to them, I think he's speaking to them as peers, as people who know the law and people who know better. I think Jesus is calling them higher. He's calling them out, not as enemies, but as fellow co-workers in the kingdom, as fellow believers in the resurrection, fellow believers in the kingdom of God that is to come, which is something the Pharisees actually are obsessed with and something that Jesus always talks about. Like, does that, does that shape this text a little bit differently, maybe? That he's not putting these guys on blast, but he's saying, look, as a fellow co-worker, as someone that I trust and I love and respect, you can't be focused on these things. Remember what matters. Remember what doesn't matter. Remember, Jesus really doesn't talk this way to many people. Jesus doesn't talk this way to the Sadducees, who genuinely are just kind of concerned with money. What would be the point in having that conversation? They wouldn't hear it. The Pharisees is just so close. It's like, so close. I want to be clear at this point. You should not talk to lots of people like this. Do not use this as an excuse to talk in this way. There's not a license to talk to everyone like this. Because too often we hear about Christians speaking truth in love, and it seems very devoid of the love part, and 
probably not that concerned about the truth either. But it's different when it's a relationship with someone that we trust. When it's someone we trust, we can be more honest. We might be able to be a bit more firm, knowing that the relationship can take the strain, it can take the conversation, it can take the criticism, which hopefully we now know each other well enough that we're able to say those things from a good place. It's not just breaking someone down, it's calling them higher. And, and here's where I get to the kind of punchline, I suppose. Do you know the person in this church that I disagree with more than anyone? And, and maybe all of you think it's you. Maybe I'm just a very disagreeable person, I don't know. Albert definitely thinks it's him, but he's not here right now, so I won't talk smack about him too much. The person who I am rawer with than anyone, the person I get into more arguments or debates with than anyone, is Donna Barker. <laughs> As I say, for the newer people that won't meet as much, but Donna Barker, as I say, is an elder here. Uh, I love her more than I love most people in the world. When I joined the church, I actually asked her to join the elders board um, for a number of reasons. One is I think she's a wonderful example of a life devoted to Jesus, and that's a good thing to have in an elder. But another is that I know she will give me hard truths when I need them. Donna Barker is someone who will stand up to me. <laughs> she will disagree with me. And, and that doesn't mean that she's mean. She's not. I'm, <laughs> she's someone that I'm really blunt with too. But the reason we can do that is because we know one another and we trust one another and we love one another. And we're both really devoted to seeing that kingdom in the way that Jesus is, in the way that the Pharisees were. But I, I realize that if someone didn't know me and didn't know Donna and didn't know about that relationship, if they just saw two minutes of an elders meeting where we're like in the middle of a disagreement, they probably think we didn't like one another. Like, wow, those guys really have a problem. But actually, it's the reverse. It's the opposite. Nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is that I trust her more than I trust most people. We can be raw and we can be blunt and we can be honest and we can still say how much we love and appreciate one another when the conversation is over, knowing that the kingdom is what we both have in mind. And Donna is also quicker to forgive than me and more gracious than me, obviously. And, and she always says, you know, James, I always say that iron sharpens iron and, and she's right. It also doesn't mean that we disagree all the time. It doesn't mean that one is more wrong than the other, although it's usually me that's wrong. But the better that we know one another, the more that we trust one another, the more honest that we can be. Like, iron sharpens iron, but iron destroys anything else. Like, make sure <laughs> that the person you're talking to in this way can take it. It's someone that you trust and trusts you. Someone who can have that conversation. Be careful with it. There's a reason Jesus doesn't talk this way to most people, because I don't think they can take it in the way the Pharisees can. Everyone else would recoil at those words, whereas the hope is the Pharisees would respond and be called higher into it. Been talking a while. Let's wrap up. <laughs>
I think in these passages, Jesus is modeling what it looks like to call someone higher, but that can only be done from this place of trust and this place of relationship and place of like showing someone you know that they matter, <laughs> that you've already given that person your time. Otherwise, we're just berating someone who doesn't expect it. It's not who Jesus is. That's not who we're called to be. We're just berating someone that can't stand up for themselves or is blindsided by this truth that we're pretending to speak in love, but it sure doesn't feel like love to them. Jesus does not punch down. So we don't get to either. But who are those people that we can be honest with? Who are those people that we have a relationship with? Who are those people that we can receive those corrective words from and are even willing to be challenged by us too? I'm not pretending this is easy. Uh, I, I talk about those conversations with Donna as if I like am really mature or immediately respond well. And what happens is I usually sulk for a while and then a couple of days later I send an email saying, thank you for all that you do. I appreciate it with hindsight. <laughs> but, but that's who we want to be as a church. We want to be a place where we can be honest and call each other higher. And, and, and I think we're doing well. I do, I do, I want to end with that. I realize there's difficult conversations happening, but that's good. I want that to happen. I think that's a good thing. I'm really excited that we're able to have difficult conversations and still be around one another and love one another and call one another higher. So thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we can follow your example always. And Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom and discernment with how we speak to others. We pray that love be our primary concern, that justice be our primary concern, and to remember that everything else spills out of that. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.